0: Hello and welcome to this latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. Um, as usual, joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the it forum?
1: It's good, apart from being cold, Gerard.
0: Oh, well, that's the, the season, isn't it? Um, so, Paul, what are we talking about today?
1: The agriculture sector, farming... Um And the thing is that agriculture remains one of our largest trade sectors in Ireland, including here in the North West. And it's an activity that's going through far-reaching change because of both Brexit and climate change.
0: Okay, so when you say big, just how big is it for us?
1: Well, there's lots of different numbers that are quoted, but to use the one that's used by the department uh, for the economy the northern ireland government figures agriculture is worth around 1.7 billion pounds to the northern ireland economy which is four percent of total economic activity now that compares to one percent of the uk economy so farming is four times more important to us than it is to britain
0: okay so you're saying that uh working through agriculture is going through far-reaching change what are the challenges that it's facing now
1: Well, the sector's very worried. Uh, Post-Brexit trade deals have been agreed by the British government with major agricultural economies, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, and as further possible deals with Brazil and Canada, and that's increasing the concern. Uh, The size of these countries' farms and their farming businesses provide much greater economies of scale, potentially undercutting UK production. Now, the British government has pledged that new trade deals will not involve reductions in environmental protection, food standards or animal welfare but some campaigners have expressed scepticism about this not least in the longer term because no government can bind future governments.
0: Okay so the farmers don't like the new trade deals then?
1: Well both the Ulster Farmers Union and Britain's National Farmers Union have criticised them saying they damage UK farming interests.
0: Right but surely Northern Ireland farmers produce a lot of the the food that is consumed here and in Great Britain.
1: Yeah, uh, around half of UK food consumption is domestically produced. uh, But a lot of the supermarket meat is sourced on the international market. In the dairy sector, the concern is about the price that's paid. Recently, the Oster Farmers Union said that of the then typical one pound sixty-five price for a two-liter bottle of milk, the, the, the farmer would receive fifty-seven pence, whereas it costs seventy pence to produce. So they're making a loss of thirteen pence for every two liters that's actually sold. By comparison, the retailers and the processors were taking around one pound and eight pence to cover their costs and margins. Now, I, I should add that some of the processors are dairy co-ops that are owned by the farmers, though not necessarily controlled by the farmers.
0: Okay, so. We all know that farmers are subsidised and receive loads of different subsidies from government. Can you explain what the subsidy arrangements are now?
1: I'll try. Uh, farmers receive farming support payments. Now, until Brexit, farmers here receive single farm payments under the European Union's Common Agricultural Policy. Farmers in Northern Ireland can now claim, under the Basic Payment Scheme, that's a total of £294 million that's available for payments to farmers who are farming at least three hectares of land. Now, if you're like me and you don't understand what a hectare is, that's about 30,000 square metres. Mm. The UK government is phasing out direct payments for farmers in England over a seven year period, providing support instead through public payments for public good, which is focused on environmental protection and climate change mitigation measures.
0: Okay, so how is the subsidy system changing here in Northern Ireland then?
1: Well, Northern Ireland's making similar changes, but they're not identical ones. The basic payment system will be replaced in 2025 by the farm sustainability payment with new targets and conditions. A new farm support and development programme will be phased in with payments reduced. Farmers will increasingly be paid for their environmental supports along with resilience, efficiency improvement and supply chain development.
0: Okay, so locally in particular farmers have been criticised for the runoff of nitrates and the waterways uh, contributing to the algae blooms. Uh, at Larkney as well.
1: Yeah, and and that illustrates the point that society and government are increasing the pressure on farmers to change systems of production in terms of both reducing carbon emissions that contribute to climate change and also other impacts on the environment, which, along with Brexit, underlines the point that farming is on the cusp of very significant changes.
0: OK, so as always, you've talked to a, a couple of people for this episode. Who have you talked to?
1: Well, let's first of all... Uh, uh, I discussed the trading pressures on the farming sector with William Taylor of Farmers for Action, whose family runs a farm on the edge of Coleraine and William runs a farm machinery business. Now Farmers for Action has been lobbying in recent years for legal protection for farm prices, which it argues are held down through stronger market position held by supermarkets and food processors. The farmers really don't have enough power in that relationship. Now you'll hear during this conversation that William talk about the proposed Farm Welfare Bill. But first I asked William to explain a bit about the family farm and the financial circumstances facing farmers at present. Uh, what you also hear him say is that one of the main impacts of Brexit has been its contribution to the inflationary cost farmers are dealing with.
2: First of all, we have the rampant inflation that has took off since uh, basically Brexit has kicked in with the sea border. And obviously, not all caused by Brexit, but obviously the Ukrainian war and everything else that has erupted. But um, so in other words, everything that's imported from the UK into Northern Ireland now has increased transport costs and increased costs doing the paperwork to allow this to happen. Um, And also the complications with stock uh, being sent across to pedigree stock I'm thinking of here being sent across to Scotland, England or Wales and then it can't return for six months which is an impossible situation if the stock has been sent over to a sale and not sold uh, and all sorts of complications and then we have the veterinary medicines issue and it, the bottom line is uh, that things for example like farm machinery and especially spare parts these, these um, cost of particularly farm machinery and spare parts, keep on rising regardless. And, and, you know, the farmer is lumbered with all this and and no way around it. So, yes, Brexit in that front has cost a lot of money uh, and, and left things just that much more expensive on the farm for everything that you touch and need. Farmers buy from 123 different suppliers on average uh, across the board. So, obviously... Each one of those raising a small amount or a larger amount has a big impact on what the farm does. Secondly, we come to the single farm payment money or what was called single farm payment money uh, before Brexit. Um, By 2020, basically at the the changeover point where UK government now pays the farmer support money, Brexit, sorry, at that point of Brexit, uh, the common agricultural policy in Brussels had not updated single-farm payment money for inflation in 20 years. Now, if you then bring that forward to what the UK government is now supplying on a promise up to election year next year, 2025, and then it all changes again, they have basically stuck, give or take, with the same amount of money. And you add rampant inflation on since 2020 to 2023, And basically the support money now going to farmers in Northern Ireland, not to mention across the rest of um, the UK is only worth about half in real terms what it was worth 23 years ago. So, you know, being a farmer at the minute, a family farmer and trying to survive has just gone from bad to worse. So that brings us right forward to the fact that we can see no other way forward other than for our Northern Ireland Farm Welfare Bill to go through Stormont as quickly as possible if Stormont resets, which we hope will be very shortly.
1: What's happened to North-South trade as far as your businesses and uh, your members' businesses are concerned? Has there been any significant change in terms of North-South trade?
2: Well, look, we can see this at the sharp end all the time with the farm machinery business. You know, bringing in spare parts and also selling, sending out spare parts, etc. And you know, when we send goods to GB, that route is not so bad. It's coming from GB to Northern Ireland is where the expense comes in with the paperwork, etc. North South trade is a lot easier on the machinery front, uh, simply because we're still part of the customs union. Um, However, the livestock thing, even north-south, is a lot easier uh, and has much the same to a point as it was prior to Brexit. However, as I said before, the livestock thing from um, Northern Ireland to GB is the awkward one, especially pedigree stock.
1: And what is, what's the comparison and values? I mean, how important is the GB trade compared with the Republic of Ireland trade? And ha- has that changed as a result of Brexit?
2: I would say the GB trade for pedigree um, sales of cattle and sheep and, and uh, you know, any other um, sides to that, even including, I suppose, pedigree chickens and other things. But um, th- the bottom line is that, uh, probably the GB trade is seventy five percent of the pedigree trade in Northern Ireland, and the the, the south of Ireland is probably about twenty five percent.
1: And has that changed since Brexit?
2: I would say what has happened is that a lot of pedigree breeders have to really plan ahead for what they're going to do if they send pedigree stock across to GB and they have to be prepared virtually to sell and not able to, shall we say, command a higher price. The buyers on the other side know that on the day they have to sell because they they can't afford to pay the bed and breakfast for the stock for six months before they can re-import them back to Northern Ireland. So yes, it has has had a negative uh, effect on pedigree animals.
1: And what about the dairy trade, William?
2: Well, look, there seems to be uh, no complaints on that front. The dairies, uh, the, the, the co-ops and others that are purchasing milk seem to be able to deal with whatever comes their way. But remember, some of that is exported outside of um, GB in Northern Ireland onto the world market. Um, however, um Yes, as far as the processors are concerned, they're able to sell all the milk that's coming to them, for example, as are the, the meat processors.
1: And it seems as if the the fears that existed before Brexit, that the, the cross-border dairy trade would be interrupted, would, would be damaged by Brexit. That does not seem to have been the case because of the Northern Ireland Protocol and subsequently the Windsor Framework. Am I right in understanding that?
2: Yes, you are correct. Um, To date, there has been no issues with um, milk from farms not being able to be collected or otherwise. And a lot of that milk does move south. And uh, albeit some of the processors may have had contingency plans in place, um, just in case anything did go wrong. But in our opinion, in Farmers for Action, it was never going to go wrong because uh, the situation with exports out of Southern Ireland for dairy products is a big part of their economy and they were always going to see that there was a way found to allow milk to travel north-south and vice versa if needed on occasion.
1: And just to finish this conversation, William, as an overview, how healthy financially are farms in Northern Ireland at this moment in time?
2: Um, we would have to say that uh, it's common knowledge that the dairy sector has the most borrowings and it is very concerning at the minute um, with a lot of uh, dairy farmers finding themselves in a position now of finding it tough enough to be able to keep up with the repayments on debts and, and uh, in, in general, um, we're not in a good place Across agriculture in Northern Ireland, we're just not in a good place. It's very evident that people are being very careful with money currently. Um, an example is the department has just put out a request for people to reply as to how uh, future monies should go into agriculture to support grant funding, etc. And internally in Farmers for Action, our answer to them is quite simply. Uh, you know, if, if the department is going to supply a 40% grant, um, do they not realise that probably 75% of the farmers in Northern Ireland are in no position to put the other 60% to the 40% to go forward and innovate and um, upgrade their farm or machines or whatever the case may be. So that takes us forward to climate change Uh, which, again, farmers are going to need a lot of money to address that situation. So everything that you have asked, Paul, on the podcast, uh, basically goes right on a circle and back to the fact that if we cannot pull off the success uh, of getting the Northern Ireland Farm Welfare Bill through Stormont as soon as it resets, Northern Ireland agriculture is just not going to be in a good place because the processors, the retailers are ruthless. And as everyone knows, they have scaled up the cost of food in their outlets and come back a little bit in agreement with the government to try and bring inflation down. But uh, milk is just the classic example. Most people were used to paying, say, one pound and five p, one pound ten, maybe a little over that, one pound twenty five, for two litres of milk. And today, I doubt if you'll buy that milk anywhere below, um, you know, one pound sixty five upwards to two pounds. So I mean, it's it's always a, 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 what would you call it, a loss leader for the supermarkets. But in spite of that, they've managed to get that price up. And here we are with the farmers getting the same price as they were getting in 2020. So this ain't going to last until, you know, something drastic is done. And for us, that's the Northern Ireland Farm Welfare Bill, supported by other farm organisations also in Northern Ireland, as you know.
1: Um, Just one final point, William. I I guess that a number of agricultural economists would argue there's actually too many farms that are too small in Northern Ireland. Uh, what's your response to that?
2: Um, that uh, for us carries absolutely no weight whatsoever um, because in actual fact this the smaller in relative terms to Northern Ireland as we'll call it, the smaller family farms who have not Uh, shall we say, taking the bait off the milk processors telling them to get bigger, keep more cows, uh, this is better, and the same on the beef front, and the same on on perhaps shall we say chickens and pigs and other things, but we'll refer to the dairy for the example. And those farmers have managed to keep their borrowings down and it is easier for them maybe to hang in there just for now, to see which way the wind blows over the next year or so. Um, So, you know, the, the bigger farms who have done what, shall we say, the processors have asked, what the dairies, uh, dairy co-ops have been pushing, you know, get bigger, keep more, and, you know, this will all be better in the long run. Well, that's not been the case. So, and 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 for us and Farmers for Action, um, we take the side of every farmer, no matter how small or how big, they're all needed. And... You know, our industry is ready for a revolution and it needs to happen anytime soon.
0: Okay, so thanks to William for that contribution. And who else did you speak to, Paul?
1: Now, our second guest today is John Gilliland, who has farmland in Derry and is a former president of the Ulster Farmers Union. He's a well-known voice Mm -hmm. uh, and is passionate about the role farmers need to play in protecting our environment, in particular through their reductions in carbon emissions. What I found especially significant talking with John was how he thinks of farmers as land managers. Anyway, let's, let's listen now to John.
3: My job situation changed in the end of February. So uh, I used to work for a livestock nutrition company called Devonish. Yeah. And I ran their research farm in Douth County Meath, um, which has just been bought by the Irish government to be the, the seventh national park in the Republic of Ireland. So um, I think we must have done something right um, that the government decided. We definitely bought it in 2013 when it was um, a derelict landscape. And we did a lot of work down there uncovering the heritage, but also did some extraordinary work in looking at future-facing farming, climate-smart farming. and um, But we overstretched ourselves, so I was made redundant and the farmers had to be sold. And the Irish government stepped in and have now bought it. And it's to be the seventh national park in the Republic of Ireland. So I suppose that's a a very well-engineered, soft landing for the company.
1: And what are you doing now, John?
3: So I am self-employed now. Um, I, I mean, my speciality, Paul, I've already carved out a niche, is I really am the expert across the British Isles and into Europe. On climate smart farming, particularly how do we deliver livestock production to net zero? And so I do three days a week based out of coventry for an organization called the Agricultural Horticultural Development Board, which is a statutory levy board, collects levies of you know, milk or beef or lamb or cereals sold. And it's used then for research, it's used for market information. Um, and it's <clears throat> It's a non-departmental public body, so it does have to answer to politicians, but it's at arm's length to politicians. And I do one day a week for Quality Meets Scotland, um, where I'm helping them in the same agenda. It's basically been a thought leader about how do we navigate where we are now to where we need to get to. And uh, I've had two big successes, Paul, that's given me a foundation to do this. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, for seven years, I chaired a think tank for DERA in Northern Ireland, where I chaired the writing of the Sustainable Land Management Strategy for Northern Ireland, where we said that actually, if you want people to change their behaviour, you can only do it if you measure and then manage, then measure, then manage. So our recommendation is that you should measure every field, every tree, every hedge in the country, and then repeat it every five years and do it with a granularity that there's a transparency and integrity that actually shows who is changing the behavior, who is stepping up to the plate, and who isn't. So that actually, that's the quickest way of getting behavioral change. And um, back in 2017, when we published our strategy, the permanent Secretary said, John, you are absolutely bonkers. I said, I may be bonkers, but I'm absolutely serious, and I'm not giving up, I think, £45 million to do this. So we gave, you know, after six months haggling, we got one and a half million to do three river catchment pilots, the Upper River Band, the River Colbert, River Strew. Uh, Through the Agri-Food and Bioscience Institute, AFBI, we managed to get 80% 80 of the farmers engaged. And two years later, we put a team of social scientists in from Leeds University, and they recorded an 85% behavioural change. We took all that back just as the government was last forming, and said, we've proved that farmers will change their behaviour if you empower them with really good information. Now, can we have 45 million to do the whole of Northern Ireland? And actually, Hutz agreed, and he found 45 million. So Northern Ireland's the first place in the world to really take this forensic approach to behavioural change of farmers. And um, so he announced in May 22... The team is going to do this. Going to take four years to do it. Four zones: County Down, a bit of County Armagh, Zone One; rest of Armagh, Fermanagh, Zone Two; our county will be Zone Three, and Antrim will be Zone Four. And um, to date, two zones have been recruited, and we're having an uptake of ninety-three uh, percent. It's on. It's unprecedented, on Paul. And so that's one foundation. So a lot of my work now is traveling internationally. People want to know, how the hell did you do this? You know, not just how did you create the vision? How do you create the politics to get this done? But you don't have any government. So how did you do this? And the second thing then, just at the start of lockdown, I secured 120,000 to bring six other farmers and myself come together take this concept one step further so brookhall lead and we're the first farms anywhere in the world to actually measure with granularity not only you know our our impact on water but you know uh, and in our trees but in our soils so we're measuring carbon down to a meter Um, we're measuring at four different depths uh, and we've created what we call whole farm carbon balance sheets And we've looked at our total emissions, we looked at our total carbon assets and what they're sequestering. And lo and behold, we found that two of the seven farms are already beyond net zero today. That one of the Brookhall being one of them. And um, so this is causing extraordinary interest, excitement, and criticism all in the the one breath. Um, So it's, I, I, I mean, just to give you an example, this week I left home at lunchtime on Sunday I uh, got the ferry over. Uh, uh, I presented um, to the stakeholders of Quality Meat Scotland in Edinburgh Monday. I presented to the uh, National Farmers Union Net Zero Committee in Coventry on Tuesday. I presented in some on Wednesday to the Northern Farming Conference uh, for sort of all that sort of northeast corner of England. And yesterday I presented to the NFU in Cumbria. And today I'm in Leeds.
1: So, a, a busy man spreading the message that farming can be environmentally sustainable. So, what are the core elements to sustainable farming for the future?
3: Well, for me, Paul, Paul the key element is we need to stop talking at farmers or start talking with farmers. This is about behavioural change. We probably We probably have 70% of the knowledge that we need to take the industry through this transition. We probably know already today. Don't know it all, but what we don't and haven't been able to do is one get the behavioural change and two do it in a manner that is forensic and has integrity. So really, the trick I have done is I've focused on the measuring and the management. How do we do that with integrity in a way that actually picks up behavioural change? So if a farmer pulls, if a dairy farmer pulls out his electric fences and put hedges back in. How have we got a granularity of digital investigation that can pick it up remotely? So everyone says satellites, but satellites will only give you one scan per 10 square meters. My aerial LIDAR service gives me 40 scans per square meter. So if someone plants a small tree and I will pick it up, okay? Likewise, if I go from Ireland's traditional monocultural ryegrass with heaps and heaps of synthetic fertilizer and I start to put legumes back in, something my grandfather would have done, okay, and using legumes to take nitrogen out of the sky and put it onto the soil, legumes have deeper roots. They lay carbon down deeper. So I need measurement tools to actually see this journey happening. So then I can report back with an integrity to say, we did this behavior, we got this response, and here is the change in my footprint. Now, that works to everybody's benefit. One is it's a great feedback loop to the farmer themselves. They can f- physically see the consequence of their behavioral change. Okay. Second of all, it gives it a granularity that you can now go to the National Greenhouse Gas Infantry and say, please, can I now have this counted? in the National Greenhouse Gas inventory, I can go to the likes of foil meat, some people uh, to processors and say, please, can I have my change counted in your scope three emission declarations, which all big businesses now have to declare. But none of those processes at that moment have the ability to pick up actual behavioral change. So farmers get a really bad media and press, but we are modeling data we're not measuring data, there is no feedback loop to farmers, and the data that goes through to society is all modelled. So there's no accuracy to it. So at least this brings true accuracy with a transparency that's unprecedented. So you can answer to criticisms, concerned citizens, but you also give this fantastic feedback loop to get farmers to change their behaviour.
1: And what your language is talking here, John, is farmers as land managers. And that is quite a different context to what politicians are talking about when they're talking about reducing beef herds and uh, reducing the amount. So why is that? Why are you speaking a different language to politicians? And are politicians wrong to talk about reducing size of herds?
3: So, so I'll, I'll make it very, very clear. First of all, it is the Republic of Ireland talking about reducing size of herds. It is not Northern Ireland talking about it, um, which is quite interesting. OK, because we both have the same problem, but we're approaching it in two different ways. Um, the Republic of Ireland are reading the the law the way the law is written today, and sometimes the law is an ass. Okay. So if we take the Greenhouse Gas National Infantry that was set up by the United Nations and IPCC, it's a spreadsheet, Paul. And it's a spreadsheet with a collection of vertical silos that don't talk to each other. Now, it's worked for the fossil fuel industry. It's worked for the transport industry. It's worked for most people until they hit agriculture. Agriculture is a horizontal industry that cuts across at least four of those vertical silos, and they're not allowed to talk to each other. And that's wrong. And I presented the United Nations in August and I called it out. They presented the United Nations a year ago in September and I called it out. I said, you need to give farm businesses an extra tool where they can inset within their business. And it's about the definition of net zero. Net zero is not about zero emissions. Net zero is about getting emissions down a bit. It's about increasing carbon stocks a bit. It's about displacing fossil fuel uh, energy with renewables and it's about putting things like anaerobic digestion to make sure that any of the waste does not create methane but you put into something constructive when you pool those and you get those to zero bingo you're at net zero and the problem in dublin is dublin have ring fenced just agriculture they haven't looked at carbon stocks they haven't looked at renewables they haven't looked at waste management they haven't looked at sustainable transport and all of those can sit within one legal farming business, so it is a different interpretation. And at the moment, I would like to think I am getting traction. Last uh, Tuesday, week ago, the European Parliament's Environment Committee voted through the uh, the uh, land sector's carbon removal framework of the of of DG Climas. They went further said it must be attached to farmers' emissions, which I've been advocating for a long time, and it must be done at individual farm level and not at the nation's level. The debate in the Republic of Ireland is really all about um, the national infantry and not about behavioural change. And they've, they've, they've really backed themselves into a corner. Um, last week's editorial in the Irish Farmers' Journal, um it really calls it out it it talks about new zealand talks about australia talks about the european parliament and my little project art zero gets a mention too because i actually as good as wrote the article for the editor um so it's a different philosophy paul i'm a practitioner i'm a pragmatist i'm also a grandfather and there's a responsibility in you and i of our generation to try and actually redirect this super tanker. And super tankers take a long long time to turn, and um, my ability, and it really comes right back from the time I was president of the Ulster Farmers Union and I had foot and mouth, I still have a lot of good political capital within the farming community, Uh, even though I've been to Hellenbach and, you know, through RHI and things like that, people still believe that I'm a person of integrity. I am inquisitive. I look at things. Maybe I stick my nose into things I sh- shouldn't really concern me, but I do, and I try and find a solution.
1: What should uh, farmers in Northern Ireland then be doing now differently? So the key. So the key thing. If we take
3: dairy production, which is the one that has the biggest emission, okay. <laughs> the two simplest things I said to dairy. What well, three things? First of all, how do we help you know your own numbers? Okay, so the first thing I want to do is empower you with really good information about your own business, not about your neighbors, about your own business. So where are your emissions? Where are your carbon stocks? Where does dirty water run off your farm and dump into the river? You know, where where's your habitats? Where are your habitats not? Okay, so how do I help you know your numbers? That's the first thing. So it's about empowering them. And when you empower them, lo and behold, they make better quality decisions, Paul. Okay, so that's the first bit. The second bit is then um, if I look at two big early wins they can do, um, the first one is in the biggest greenhouse gas emission is not methane, it's nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is a long-lived gas, lives in the atmosphere of, uh, uh, you know, for over 100 years, and it has a global warming potential of about 290 times the CO2. Methane is a short-lived gas. It only lives in the atmosphere for 12 years and has a, 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 and at the moment, depending how you work it out, has a global warming potential of 26 times. And, you know, the media and society have got this all, they're all beating the living daylights out of me thing. The one they need to beat the living daylights is nitrous oxide. Now, nitrous oxide is the easier of the two greenhouse gases on the farm to sort out. It comes from using artificial fertilizer on wet soils. Okay, so how do we stop that? Well, we start that by, one, knowing the fertility of our soil, so getting our soil pH so our nitrogen use sufficiency in the soil is far better. The second thing we do is we um, look to do what our forefathers did, which is put legumes back in again. Legumes fixate nitrogen, they take it out of the sky, they release it through their roots, and they fertilise the other plants around them. So can we go back to some of the things our forefathers did but now with modern science, we can understand better how to leverage that. Okay. So when you can do that, so the the trials I did at the research farm in and County, Mead over four years, we reduced our nitrogen fertilizer by 80%. Um, we increased our productivity at the same time. So that, that's one example. The second one, very simple, for all those hedges that were ripped out and fences were put in, can we take the electric fences back out, and put hedges back in again? And reconnect habitats so that you you know there's there's a win-win on both sides. Now, those are two very visible things that you could do for a starter for 10 before you start looking at expensive sexy technologies around um, methane inhibitors, which is the sexy thing that the Irish government are talking about. But it's a costly thing. I there's a thing called a MAC curve, a marginal abatement cost curve which shows all the different mitigation options a farmer can do and the economics around it. And surprise, surprise, over half of them actually have a negative cost, in other words, a profit. So when I sit down with farmers, what I do is I show them this MAC curve. I show them the win-win activities. And I it's just you focus on those in a moment. Someone at some stage, we will have to go to the expensive options, but at some stage, someone will have to bring our sector into emissions trading. And we'll have to pay for the price of carbon. They're not at the moment, but they will have to go there at some stage. So let's focus on the win-wins. Let's build up the evidence. My Arc Zero project is a pilot. We've just got further funding from the Co-op Foundation in the UK. Uh, We're in a big bid with Wagram University uh, uh, in the Netherlands to the European Commission to set up a living lab network across six European countries and Northern Ireland. All being well, we will succeed on that. Um, And um, really what we're trying to do in those living labs or pilots is investigate what we call the right-hand side of the Mac curve, which are the win losers the expensive options, to actually find out how expensive are they truly on a commercial farm and what is it we would need to do to tackle to bring those to be more reachable for a business that still has to make a profit at the end of the day.
1: Now, you mentioned their emissions trading, and that touches on the international trade element of agriculture. Uh, How is it possible for farmers to move towards emissions trading systems without becoming internationally competitive? And how does that feed into the position of the Northern Ireland agriculture industry in terms of Brexit? So, um, well, uh, uh, I mean, the one key
3: thing immediately in Brexit is whether the UK actually goes for a carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism, CBAM, which is what the European Commission are currently looking at. UK have just had a consultation on it. But I will argue, Paul, that actually both the UK and Europe are asleep at the wheel. Australia has beaten them. What is the country that has just done a free trade deal in agricultural products with Australia? The United Kingdom. Australia set up a clean air regulator nine years ago to bring in the land-based sector. But they set the bar really high. And for nine years, no farms got through it. This year, seven farms got through it. And those guys have done it not by modelling, but by measuring. They measured, they baselined their farms nine years ago. They repeated the baseline of their farm two years ago. They got a huge increase of carbon in their soils under grazing animals because they changed their practices They have now got it verified. They've taken it to the Clean Air Regulator and they have been awarded Australian carbon credit units. So those are already there. You can Google the Clean Air Regulator in Australia. I can send you articles on it. And those guys, I mean, the Seventh Farm, there's a a magazine in Australia called Beef Central. And in their September edition, they did a feature on the Seventh Farm to get through. And they got, I think, 94,000 Australian carbon credit units which were sold for 93 Australian dollars a ton. And on his farm, that equated for his seven years' activity, 8.8 million Australian dollars. For cattle grazing, whose beef product could come into the United Kingdom without any barrier whatsoever and undermine any of beef production in the British Isles, whether it be the UK or the Republic of Ireland. Hence, the reason the editorial in the Irish Farmers Journal last week was beware of Australia. Um, So this is moving at a pace, Paul, and we've been asleep at the wheel. My job is to actually scan. I have just been invited by Woolworths, which is the top retailer in Australia. I am to be their guest speaker at Australia Beef May 2024. Um, Because although they're leading in things, the granularity that I've approached and I've just taken it further when they've asked me to be their keynote speaker in Australia, in, as I say, next May. Um, and so my my issue is that there are, there are some really pertinent issues as we speak about the Windsor framework, but actually that's here and now. What people aren't seeing is the big picture. We have allowed Brexit to dominate and we've been asleep at the wheel and we haven't watched what's going on What I am saying is the European Commission are moving on, the European Parliament are moving on a speed at this for a... What will probably happen, it'll happen in two stages, Paul, is first of all, there will be a ring-fence trading scheme for within the land-based sector to to get the land-based food production sector to turn its ship round, But at some stage, that will then be opened up and brought into the total emissions trading scheme. Now, some people, I mean, Michael O'Leary would love to come and buy our carbon credits tomorrow. And I, two things I'm saying to farmers is, first of all, sell nothing until you've done your full footprint, because you may need your surplus carbon to be an inset against the unavoidable emissions coming from the rumen of a cow within your own farm. So that's the first thing I'm saying to them. So know your numbers. The second thing is, actually, we need to put our own house in order in our sector, because it is the greenhouse gas infantry, it's the scope three emission declarations that are screwing us. And that allows then the other lobbies out there, whether it be you know, animal welfare people, environmentalists or plant-based food people, to absolutely ru- ridicule this sector. And a lot of it, unfairly. Okay, so thanks to John
0: for that, to to his very technical contribution, but uh... Does really say a lot about how farming is changing here and also how it needs to change to help protect our environment. So that's it for this episode. Thanks goes out to all the usual people. Firstly, to William and John for taking part, to Paul for pulling together the interviews and uh, the hard work and research that he's put into this, as well as Michael for editing, and of course to our funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland for funding this podcast. And as always, all previous podcast episodes are available through the Hollywood Trust website.